0: Welcome to the Work and Play Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Joyce. Today's episode is important, and by listening and sharing, you can save the lives of women like my sister. Just under two years ago, my 37-year-old sister Amanda was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer. During her fight, she publicly shared her story to help raise awareness about this disease. Since her recent passing, it's become my mission to follow in her footsteps and continue to advocate for women like her. I've asked Emily Chason, a spokesperson from Ovarian Cancer Canada to join us today to help share Amanda's message. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily.
1: Thank you for having me. So we'll
0: just jump right into the first question. Can you tell us about your organization and how did you get
1: involved? Ovarian Cancer Canada is the only charity in Canada that raises funds that specifically go towards funding research, education, awareness programs, and support programs for ovarian cancer we're a small organization we're 19 people across canada our head office is in toronto i always say you know i'm amazed at the work that we're able to do with few people and how i came about getting involved with this is when i was 22 one of my best friends her mom uh, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer And I believe, if I recall, that that she actually died in about 13 months. It was very quick and it had a profound effect on their family. Her mom played a big role in their family. And Carrie actually started volunteering with Ovarian Cancer Canada at that time. And we didn't even really know what our ovaries were, to tell you the truth, at that time. Or that you could (laughs) specifically get cancer in them. And then I ended up getting um, involved in a, empl- being an employee 10 years ago, I had moved back to Halifax from Toronto, and they were looking to grow things in this region. And I signed up.
0: Wow, so that's, that's fantastic. So how I came about getting involved. So nice. So I've heard that ovarian cancer can be called the silent killer. Can you share some ovarian cancer statistics for our listeners?
1: The thing with ovarian cancer is we used to focus a lot on talking about signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer and talking about, oh, know about uh, signs and symptoms for early diagnosis. We really moved away from talking about that because knowing the signs and symptoms, which I'll tell you what they are, doesn't necessarily mean you get diagnosed early. Mm -hmm. So what they have found when looking at women who get diagnosed is even if they went to the doctor when they got signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer, it often was already at stage three. So it doesn't mean that you get early diagnosis because of that. So what makes it even more complicated is that the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very vague and benign in nature they're things that women deal with on most any day. So it can be abdominal pain. Now, some women will say, I had a dull pain. Some people will say I had a popping pain. Some people would say, oh, when I laid on my belly in a certain way, I got a little pain. Some people say it's a sharp pain. So it's not a definitive like it is when you look at skin cancer. I have a mole that changed a lot. Mm -hmm. I think I should go to my doctor or I feel a lump in my breast. Um, So There's also lower back pain, fatigue, issues with urination. So usually women will find that they get an urgency. But if you look at any of these symptoms, they're things that women deal with for a variety of reasons. Menstruation, aging, having children. There's so many different things that you can say, oh gosh. That must be because I'm allergic to gluten. Exactly, because bowel issues are also one other thing that happens.
0: Yes, that's when my sisters had a lot of um, GI issues, like pretty much her whole life. So yeah. when she started coming down with some more abdominal pains and things, she was thinking it was something more related to those previous issues.
1: Which, which makes sense.
0: Exactly. So they are definitely vague.
1: Yeah, and so um, what ends up happening too is. You often have to take a half day off work to go to the doctor and sit and wait and they're mm-hmm. like, Oh, I don't think it's anything that serious, you know, and sometimes women will push off going to the doctor because the symptoms aren't so over the top, if you will. I
0: was definitely guilty of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think most people can say that. But what ends up happening with ovarian cancer too is sometimes something very subtle will suddenly turn into something big, mm-hmm. which one of the big things that will happen with some women is they get fluid in their belly. Right. So a weight gain that isn't otherwise explainable. And often women will say that it's a weight gain like right in your belly. It's almost mm-hmm. like um, you feel pregnant or very bloated, hard belly. Everybody's a little bit different. Truthfully, you know, I've met so many women over the course of doing this job and, and everybody's a little different. Mm -hmm. And also it can happen to any woman at any age. It used to be told that it was sort of an older women's cancer and it's not, it can happen to anyone. Right. You know, I think the big thing is a lot of women will say intuitively sometimes they did think there was something more wrong than perhaps just their period or, you know, baby issues or menopause or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. A big thing is just really paying attention to your body. And we also say if these symptoms go on for three weeks or more to go to your doctor, because at that point, you know, it's likely not a virus, a flu, uh, you know, like it's if you're continuously seeing this happen, Just make an appointment at your doctor.
0: Or would you say if the symptoms get any worse? Of course. So like with my sister, how I had mentioned she had GI issues and some pains kind of for a while that she described as like period cramps that just sort of didn't go away. But then as her disease was progressing and she wasn't diagnosed yet, they got severe where she was in pain where one day she felt like she needed to call an ambulance. She said she described it as like labor pain. So at that point, that's when she had already put in a call to the doctor to have an appointment. So would you say like if, if symptoms are progressing as well?
1: Of course. And a lot of women actually end up being in the ER because of that, mm-hmm. because of what you're saying. Something small turns into something big, you know, where there's pain often involved. And, you know, there, there's a lot of people deal with things. Like um, I remember one woman, she had scoliosis. So she said, I was used to pain. And I I didn't really realize that this pain wasn't associated with that pain.
0: (laughs) So really just being intuitive and listening to your body is step one, really? Yes. So what types of detection methods currently exist to detect ovarian cancer?
1: There is not any early detection available for ovarian cancer right now. Going back to sort of what I said earlier, how there isn't a screening test like a pap test or a mammogram, colonoscopies, things like that, that are meant to catch cancer when they are pre-cancer or very early. So uh, as I mentioned, when signs show right now, the cancer has actually already progressed quite quickly. And it's most commonly diagnosed in stage three. So as of right now, in terms of early diagnosis, uh, screening, the one way that you can educate yourself and make decisions for yourself is by having genetic testing done. Right. So they do know that certain families carry a gene, BRCA gene, where they can get tested. And if they do indeed carry that gene, geneticists and doctors will tell you, this is the likelihood of 90%, 80%, you know, that you are going to get this cancer in your life and you can make your own proactive decision whatever suits you some women decide to proactively uh, have a hysterectomy and have their ovaries removed because they want to avoid the risk mm-hmm. so though i would not call that early detection mm-hmm. it's avoidance of you know trying to avoid ever having the disease Right. That is it in terms of sort of early detection as of right now. Wow. Once you get symptoms and whatnot, doctors will do transvaginal ultrasounds. There is a blood test. It's called the CA-125. It is not used for early detection. However, when women maybe your sister you might be Mm -hmm. familiar too with amanda she may have had these tests done it's a marker that they'll use for women who have been diagnosed if their ca 125 is elevated normally it can be an indication that perhaps something is going on but that's it in terms of early detection right now so that is one of the big things that researchers obviously are trying to find out why does it happen yes then what is it that we can do to test so that we know about it before it ever turns into an issue? And I think another big piece of this early detection discussion that's important with ovarian cancer is because we don't openly talk about female health, pap smears, babies, anything to do with female health, women go to their doctors and they assume that the pap test covered them for ovarian cancer. Or they assume that because you only get a pap test every three years, oh, well, you know, that's when I do that. But it does not test for ovarian cancer. And I tell women that when they're going for their pap tests, you only go every three years if you're somebody who has, A, never had an irregular pap. B, you have no symptoms. C, you've had the same sexual partner. But if during those three years, you know, you suddenly have irregular menstrual, menstrual bleeding, or you have cramping, or you have anything to go to your doctor and get your abdominal uh, exam done. Mm -hmm. So again, I think that because it's an awkward topic, not that you can go to your doctor and have a screening test like a pap test, but it's important to not sit and wait. Oh, well, I'll do that when it must be something to do with that, or or Mm -hmm. they already tested me for ovarian cancer. Right. So to definitively know that the pap test or the HPV uh, vaccination does not cover ovarian cancer.
0: Right. So I just have a side question. So if you're a woman who doesn't have history of ovarian cancer in your family, can you request to have genetic testing done?
1: Likely not. So basically, it's like an equation, for lack of better, that they assess your risk level, that if you don't have a family history of cancer, so the the cancers that are associated with being hereditary, there's breast cancer, especially if it's premenopausal, if mm-hmm. your mom or your grandmother or your father's mother, because genetics are 50% and they can be passed through your dad to you, even though it is ovarian, mm-hmm. you might not think, but it, it's a gene that is from breast cancer, colon cancers, uterine cancers, there's all a connection there. So basically, they will look at your family history and say like, yep, you know what, there might be a genetic uh, cancer happening here and you get tested. But a few years ago, Angelina Jolie wrote an opt-ed for the New York Times about her experience with BRCA. Now she has a family history of ovarian cancer and I believe breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So she found out that she had the BRCA gene, and then she proactively had surgeries to remove her breasts. And then she actually ended up having a hysterectomy a few years later as well. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, amazing awareness. However, every woman got scared and thought, oh, I need genetic (laughs) testing, you know, so um, unless you have a family history. But a big thing That's really important is to talk about your family history. People don't know, you know, in the past, we didn't know about our family histories because maybe they, I even remember when I was a kid, I'm 40. So when I was a kid, a woman being sick and asking, and mom was like, oh, she's got cancer. You know, she's just full of cancer. Mm -hmm. She's not going to live that might have been an ovarian cancer at that time, but they didn't explore it in to see. So now we definitively know. Exactly. It's ovarian. It's this type of breast cancer. It's this type of colon cancer. So we know our family histories. So if you just talk about that and educate yourself on it, then you can talk about your risk with your doctor.
0: So in my case, I'm going to take a little personal spin on this. So my sister tested negative for the genetic BRCA gene. However, I've read that the risk is still high with family history. Mm -hmm. So in that case, what would your recommendation be for someone like me, for Amanda's daughters or for my mother?
1: Well, a lot of times for your own mental health, it's important to talk about things like this with your doctor because you just saw your sister go through something that, you know, would be unimaginable that you would never want somebody to ever go through again, Mm -hmm. her daughters, your mom, anybody that's close to you. The thing with genetic testing and genetic studies is they're learning so much tomorrow, they might tell us something totally different that, you know, and sometimes there are random genes that people get in families where I could have ovarian cancer and have the gene, but nobody else in my family has it. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of information about it that's evolving, even in the 10 years that I've done this job. When I first started, the information was is that 10% of ovarian cancers contained a risk factor that perhaps caused it. So that might be genetics were included in that 10%. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now they're saying it's more like 35% of ovarian cancers are genetic. So in 10 years, you know, they've gone from it being maybe 5% to 35% kind of thing. And so as they're learning about genetics, they may come, you know, find out more, they're saying that ovarian is a consortium Mm
0: -hmm. of diseases.
1: So I think that for you, obviously, it's always such a huge worry, you know, for anybody that has this disease that could that happen to her daughters? Could that happen mm-hmm. to me? So I think the big thing is to just stay educated, stay proactive, talk to your doctor about it and assess your risk and advocate for your own health.
0: Yes, which actually, just so you know, I did call my doctor yesterday and I'm being referred for genetic testing or for genetic can- counseling. There you
1: go. Yeah. Counseling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that'll help you because. I mean, I don't want to use the word PTSD, because I don't want to apply that to somebody. But when you see somebody go through this disease, you know, I can only imagine when it's somebody that you love, that it's very traumatic what happens. And Mm -hmm. if you can give yourself some sense of security by feeling like you're managing your own health and and amanda's daughters and you know that helps you move forward after experiencing this
0: absolutely and so i'm so glad that we talked about this because i know amanda has a lot of followers who are going through the same thing and that their family members are probably wondering because i hear a lot about people that maybe carry the gene but we don't necessarily hear a lot for what to do if your family member who had ovarian cancer didn't carry the gene so i'm so glad that we had this discussion Mm mm-hmm So Emily, what's the average lifespan of a woman that's diagnosed with ovarian cancer?
1: This is the hard thing about ovarian cancer is that the outcomes associated with it haven't changed in upwards of 50 years. Women who were diagnosed 50 years ago still ultimately have the same outcome as women who are diagnosed today. Unfortunately, mortality rates are high. Around 80% of women will lose their life to ovarian cancer. The positive thing, if they're, you know, can see a positive with those statistics is that there are drugs available now that were not available in the past that help women have what we call progression-free illness. So if the average woman, and I'm just using this as a number just for even sake. So let's say the average woman survived two years ago, 10 years ago. Now with these drugs, they're able to live three years. So it's helping women have longer period of time post-diagnosis and treatment where they're able to function, you know, relatively well and it extends their life. The problem is, is that this disease is so complicated mm-hmm. and it often comes back. So it's the reoccurrence that's usually the big problem with ovarian cancer. And people often say to me, well, how do you have a reoccurrence if you've had your ovaries taken out? But the thing is, they describe ovarian cancer to be something like a dandelion that once it gets outside of the ovaries, when you picture yourself blowing a dandelion, it's like the seeds go everywhere. So all through the abdomen, attaching to the bowel often. And so when doctors do surgeries on ovarian cancer, it's kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so they try to sop up as many of the cancer cells as they can. However, they're often there hidden in little places, and then they continue to grow. So that is the complication with ovarian cancer that is unlike some other cancers. And because of that, it's complicated to treat. And every time it comes back, it's more complicated. I mean, as you just saw with with Amanda, Mm -hmm. it's not only the cancer, it's, you know, you go through a hysterectomy, often women end up having to have large portions of their bowel removed. There's all kinds of things that are associated that cause your overall health to be difficult as right. well. And your quality
0: yeah. of life suffers as well yeah. a lot of the times. Yeah. So what about the different stages of cancer? Some listeners may not be familiar with what the different stages mean. And does that change the prognosis? I know we, we talked a little bit about there is no early detection per se, but say something was discovered by accident in life like early stage one uh, versus a stage four, like what can that mean for the patient? And what do the different stages sort of mean for ovarian cancer?
1: Well, with ovarian cancer, if you get diagnosed in stage one, it's literally the exact opposite statistic. It has about a 90% survival rate. Wow! So the most common ovarian cancers are not stage one, but when they do happen in stage one, it means that it's still contained within the ovary. So oftentimes women will get this sudden onset of pain, and it usually is like quite a large tumor that's in the ovary, but they are able to take that out and have treatment. And those women do very, very well. Stage two is when it's still within the reproductive organs. So um, in the uterus, let's say the ovaries, again, easier to treat because it's still within that cavity.
0: So survival rate would be better.
1: Would be better for sure. It's when it turns to stage three that it's much more complicated because that means that it is in oftentimes the bowel, the amatum, the ovaries. So it's sort of in the whole abdomen mm-hmm. area. Stage four means that it's already spread. Usually there's fluid in the lungs. Women will have spots attached, you often hear, on their liver. And at that point, it actually can be in the brain. Most commonly, 3C is what women get diagnosed with. So if you do get diagnosed, if you are somebody that's in stage one or two, your prognosis is actually like very good.
0: Well, that's actually hopeful then to hear something like that.
1: I know oftentimes when we have support events and women who have been diagnosed in a stage one or stage two, sometimes they feel guilty being there because their prognosis is much better. However, it's still cancer. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's still
1: scary. And it's still harsh treatment. Like it's it's chemo and, and still could have genetic and, links
0: and effects on your family and things like that as well. So for wow. sure. Yeah. So what kind of supports does Ovarian Cancer Canada provide women facing such a tragic disease?
1: We offer a lot of uh, different things for women who've been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. One of the first things that we hope women will do is when they get diagnosed either right away or sometime close to it, if they would reach out to us. Because we provide the only resource book for women living with ovarian cancer, and it is called By Your Side. It's an amazing book that will guide you sort of through your journey, help you and your family understand a bit of the what's next and what to expect. There's information from other women who are living with ovarian cancer in the book. As well, we do a book for women who are having reoccurrence called Still By Your Side. And so it is more information specific for women who are having reoccurrences. We offer personal conversations. Obviously, I, I talk to a lot of women who have ovarian cancer. Then what I will often do is set them up with a peer who perhaps is in the same diagnosis as them. Or sometimes people want to talk someone that's the same age as them. When, when you're a younger person, mm-hmm. a lot of times they feel like, oh gosh, I went to this and it was all, you know, women in their fifties or, you know, so sometimes it's like an Amanda setting her up to talk to somebody who perhaps has gone through the same thing because when you're Googling things and you know, it's, it's much better to talk to somebody that's real, not just the internet. Mm -hmm. We do that. We, as well, we have an online support community called Of Dialogue. It's also in French as well. So women can register on there and go in and either do live chats with other women. There's about 700 women use it across Canada right now. There's also a huge amount of information on there, past recordings of different presentations, webinars, and things like that, that we've done. We just hosted, because of COVID, we've had to pivot. We normally do, you know, symposiums and support things in person, but we can't do that anymore. So we just did our first virtual national support symposium.
0: Yes, that was great.
1: Yeah, we had 456 women register for it and 44 speakers from across Canada. And it was amazing because normally, if you're a woman that gets diagnosed, let's say in Newfoundland, well, due to the population, due to the geography, you're not going to have these amazing speakers from Toronto and Vancouver come to St. John's or wherever you live. So this way, it doesn't matter where you are everybody was exposed to the same information. And that was awesome. And then those are traditional support things. Other people look at support as they're able to volunteer with us. Mm -hmm. They're able to advocate the government with us. They're able to contribute in different ways that perhaps isn't just going to a support group. That's not what everybody wants to do. Some women will get diagnosed and support to them as being able to go out and do something. So we've been able to help women in all different ways in terms of support. But because we are the only organization in Canada that does this work, we specialize in it. And we have a huge network of women who have gone through the same thing as you. And it's very important to have support during something that is, you know, a very serious diagnosis.
0: So you've really built a community for these women and their families who are going through such a tragic and difficult time in their lives and I think having that connection with other people like you said that are going through the same or something similar is that's so important and that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, and we also do every year our Walk of Hope. So the second Sunday in September, it's our biggest fundraiser. But the whole purpose of that event is to bring our community together and support women who are living with the disease and their families, or to support women's families who have lost someone. So that's a big support thing too, to see thousands of people come out and help and talk and cheer you on. You know, support is a variety of different things. And Because of the direct nature of what we do as an organization, we've got many ways that we can help support women who have ovarian cancer.
0: I love the Walk of Hope. My family has taken part for the last two years, and we're going to continue to do so for years to come. So I think that thank you for throwing that amazing fundraiser. It's great. So when people donate to Ovarian Cancer Canada, what does this allow the organization to do for those patients and their families?
1: As I was just chatting about in the last question, all of the different support things that I mentioned, it allows us to deliver those programs in person, online, physical books to women living with ovarian cancer and their family. It allows us to have a fulsome website that is full of information as well. Our website is an amazing resource, ovariancanada.org. But then the other things outside of support that we do is we are the main funder of research in Canada. So we fund all different types of research that's happening across the country. We also fund tissue banks where they house uh, women's tissue who have had ovarian cancer so that scientists can use those and study them. So we fund those across Canada. Another big thing that we do is government advocacy. So we got into government advocacy about five years ago now. And when it started, we were on Parliament Hill talking to politicians. And I remember I was meeting with Jeff Regan, who was Speaker of the House at the time. And I had two sisters from Winnipeg with me, Sanchez uh, girls, and they lost their mom to ovarian cancer. And they're both gynecologic oncology nurses now, which is crazy. Wow. So we were giving him a lot of information. And I remember him saying like, why don't I know about this? Like, why isn't anybody talking about this? And we were like, well, because the reality is, is that most women die from it. Mm -hmm. And so then you have, devastated families that are left you know so it's caused this real movement that we've been working on and for four years worth of advocating the government we got 10 million dollars in the federal budget last year for the first time ever it was amazing and emotional and then the nova scotia government first government in canada to do it announced in March that they were giving a million dollars to research. That's amazing. And then very closely after that, the Saskatchewan government announced that they were also giving a million dollars and then COVID happened. So everything kind of got, uh, we couldn't really talk about it all that much because everybody's been so distracted trying to do everything else with COVID. But with that government money, we are essentially a steward of it. So we get a professional panel together of scientists and doctors, and then they decide where that money is going to be best allocated for research. Another thing that we do is education. So we help doctors, nurses, and ultrasound technicians, and all the different people that are going to be healthcare professionals, we educate them on ovarian cancer. Because when you think of it, you know, a GP is taught to know a little about a lot, right? So they probably don't focus that much on it in their studies, but we really work on doing education with gynae oncology association of Canada we're also uh, do presentations at universities, Um, so we do a lot of education, and then we just do awareness. So awareness now has, you know, largely moved to social media about ovarian cancer, where we used to do a lot of, you know, posters and farmers market tables and like, you know, things like that. Now, a lot of our awareness is done online. We had a general awareness campaign a few years ago called Lady Balls. It was all about women have balls too. We sure do. And, you know, from Yeah. Figuratively and literally. (laughs) And from that movement, you know, we do big fundraisers called the Lady Ball. So we're doing all kinds of stuff. And that is what your donations help. And I can proudly say I'm the only employee in Atlantic Canada. And that's the way it is across the country. We are a very lean organization. So when you donate to us, the dollars go where they are supposed to go.
0: That's amazing. So if somebody wants to donate, how do they do that?
1: They can go to our website ovariancanada.org and there's big donate button <laughs> um, so you can donate and you get tax receipts obviously. That's the most simple way to donate otherwise is to sign up for our newsletter and pay attention to different events that we have going on across the country that perhaps that might be how you want to get involved or you can donate by doing some fundraising yourself. He looked during COVID, you know, if you're looking to do something fun, you know, outside of your normal routine, it can be a great way to give back and do something that uh, is important.
0: That's fantastic. I know one of my daughters was mentioning that for her birthday, she doesn't want gifts. She wants to have donations for ovarian cancer. So that, there's another idea for oh, how people can get involved. Yes. Big people and small people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If someone is interested in helping this cause other than donation, what would you recommend? How can they get involved and how can they help?
1: COVID has really put a kink in a lot of our usual volunteer roles. Like I mentioned, we have the Walk of Hope. We have committees of people. That's all volunteer run across Canada. You can get involved in that or with some of our bigger fundraisers in different cities across Canada, um, the Lady Ball being our biggest one that's in St. John's, Halifax, Charlottetown, Calgary, Vancouver normally. So hopefully post COVID, we'll get back to having some of that regular type of volunteer roles. And then another big thing you can do is reach out to your MPs and local politicians and, you know, write letters advocating for more attention for women's health. That's how we got the $10 million from the government before was everyday people just showing up and putting those asks into their local politicians and people often think they don't have impact. They do have impact when you do that. I always love the quote, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. So everybody doing a bit of something across the country made a big outcome. So you can volunteer in those ways or Not even in a traditional volunteer capacity is to go to our website or our social media and share on your own social media things that you learned that way, you know, so that women read more about it and you can help spread awareness within your own networks.
0: I imagine even having uh, women who have experienced it themselves or families just sharing stories would be really powerful as well and like getting that out there. Oh, yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to share Amanda's story as much as I can, even when it's difficult, just to get it out there and people it's being very well received. And I'm, I'm really hoping that that's going to help some other women feel brave enough to to share their stories to hopefully save some lives and spread awareness about this disease.
1: Absolutely. And it's really interesting, like with all the different women that I deal with, with, you know, over the years is everybody's different. Some people don't want to talk about it. Some people want to talk about it. Like Amanda was so public and so brave the stuff that she shared that she was going through because it's not just the disease it's everything and dealing with her family and even you know she was talking a lot about getting finances and things like that organized like she really put it all out there Mm -hmm. and that impacted a lot of people and a lot of people learned about the disease through her Mm -hmm. and her experience and I always tell women, you're the most important people to tell this story. It's happening to you, you know? And and even when we were doing the government advocacy, women would be nervous going to talk to politicians. And I'm like, you're the expert, girl. Why are you nervous? You're going to educate them on something. And politicians are here to serve us. And so if you feel that you aren't being heard, you know, that's what they're there for, they're there to help and make change. And so the more you talk about things, the more people know about it. And the more that we won't have these continuous stories of loss with this disease. Exactly. You know, like I said earlier, it's been 50 years, where things haven't changed, you know, so the more people talk about stuff, the better it is. The same thing happened with breast cancer, breast cancer used to be a terrible diagnosis. Now it's significantly different. It's largely stories of survival now because people demand it change. And then more research was put into it and the outcomes are different now. Do you have any research updates that you'd like to share with us? Sure. Well, one big thing that we're working on, as I mentioned, with the $10 million that we got from the government is that's $10 million in funding for research that previously wasn't there and the million dollars from Nova Scotia as well. So a big piece of research that happened, it's not super recent, but it was something that was very important is that they believe that ovarian cancer starts in the fallopian tube not right in the ovary so when we get back to talking about screening and early diagnosis is that if you are having a hysterectomy for another reason but it's not a whole hysterectomy as in you're not having your ovaries taken out but you're having your uterus taken out to talk to your doctor about removing your fallopian tubes because They don't have a purpose anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you can eliminate, it's not standard practice across Canada now, but it is becoming more and more common that doctors are doing that. So that was a really interesting uh, piece of research that came out a number of years ago. So they're continuing to research more about that. Like, I always feel with research is that you just, we used to have a survivor in Ottawa, she would say, oh, you'll live longer if you live long enough. So basically, she was saying, like, you just never know Mm -hmm. what's around the corner. You know, a lot of research has been going into what we talked about with BRCA. That's been huge, what they've learned about genetics and ovarian cancer. So those are sort of the two bigger things that we know about. On our website as well, there's lots of information about clinical trials that are going on in Canada that perhaps you might be a woman that might fit one of the clinical trials. Um, There's an amazing company in Halifax called IMV. They have developed and they're in Getting to the end of clinical trials in humans, it's a vaccination for ovarian cancer. Wow. So, but it's weird in that you have to have already had ovarian cancer to get the vaccination. So, essentially, it's causing you to not reoccur, is what it is. So, that's amazing. And I love that it's here, you know, that that's where it all started. The more money that we're able to give scientists to do research the more research they're going to be able to do. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's a big thing right now is that we're able to actually give them some money to forward what they're doing.
0: That's fantastic. Why is it important for women that have been diagnosed with ovarian cancer to reach out to Ovarian Cancer Canada?
1: Beyond all of the support things that we can offer in education and, you know, all the different things that I already talked about, it's really important just even for statistics for us to have a really good grasp on who is living with ovarian cancer and where across the country and something that we're working on right now for the first time ever in Canada, we're doing the every woman study and what it is, we had a goal of getting 500 women from all across Canada to fill out this study, it's one hour long. And basically what we believe as an organization is that it doesn't matter where you live in Canada, you should have access to the same types of treatments as anybody else that lives here. So Mm -hmm. we wanna know from women, who have been diagnosed and are living with ovarian cancer, what their experience has been with getting diagnosed, with their treatments, with access to information, access to doctors. We had a goal of 500. And after the symposium, we did have a really nice jump in numbers for that study, because We did a presentation on it during the symposium, so a lot of women that registered got more information about it. So we were at about 525 yesterday. So we set a new goal of 600 because we only have until a bit less than a week now to to get it filled out, ideally. So that just gives us valuable information. So when when we have more access to more women and then the more women that we have access to, the more women that say, you know, I'm not alone. I felt so alone. I didn't know about you guys. I didn't know, I didn't know anybody else. You know, I went to a breast cancer support group because there wasn't one for ovarian cancer. And I realized, oh, that's a very different experience than it is having ovarian cancer. So having that connectivity with people who are going through the exact same thing as you is, is really important. And it's not just the disease. It's all the psychosocial things, a feeling of connectivity, a feeling of community, a feeling of being seen and heard and listened to is huge when you're going through this type of disease. It's
0: one thing to talk to friends and family about what you're going through. I mean, that's really important in itself. But having someone who is experiencing the same thing or really understands and, you know, can can be in the same shoes as you uh, really gives you some power together, I think.
1: Totally. And I, I tell people too, like there are so many counselors that you can take advantage of, like in a lot of places now, there's specific people that are grief counselors grief isn't just when somebody dies Mm -hmm. grief happens when you get diagnosed with a disease like this that you know life as it was isn't here anymore you know and trying to deal with your emotions and so that's a huge side of this too it's not just doctors and chemo and you know it's talking about things whatever those things are and they're just there are lots of people out there who care and can really help you you know, feel supported in whatever way you need support.
0: So I'm a huge supporter of holistic wellness. What would you recommend for people who ha- are experiencing ovarian cancer or families that are affected? How can they take care of their mental health?
1: Oh, well, just on our symposium uh, last week, that a large portion of it was all about wellness. And we had all different people speak across Canada. There was art therapy, there was meditation, yoga, exercise, diet. We as humans, we're not uh, siloed, right? Like our wellness isn't just going to the doctor. Mm -hmm. Our wellness is taking care of our emotions, talking about things, exercising, eating well, taking time for yourself, you know, listening to yourself you know, a lot of women obviously find that hard to do because they have so much on their plate on any given day that a lot of times it's their own wellness that they take care of the last. Mm
0: -hmm. So, you
1: know, making that a priority, you know, whatever it is that, that you value talking to friends, being social. If that's what you wanna do, do things that fill your cup uh, up as as they say, and to continue doing those things when you're going through a diagnosis like ovarian cancer to not let those things slide off because it's very stressful. And if you can try and manage that with your own wellness, whatever it is that you choose to do, it's very important.
0: Where can our listeners find out more information about ovarian cancer?
1: You can go to our website, ovariancanada.org, and then on social media, if you go to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, if you just put in Ovarian Cancer Canada. All of our uh, different handles will come up and we've got great social media, very informative as well as, you know, we love to showcase all the different people who are doing things for us across Canada, be it fundraising or researchers who are doing things or volunteers or, you know, so we um, spread a lot of information through our various social media channels.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much, Emily, for being here today. This was so informative. And I really encourage all of our listeners to share this podcast out and get the message out there. And let's help Ovarian Cancer Canada and myself advocate for this disease.
1: Absolutely. And thank you. And I've been thinking about you guys a lot because I, you know, saw Amanda go through ovarian cancer in a very public way. And, you know, I meet a lot of people that go through this disease, but she certainly impacted me in how she shared her journey with this so openly. And I've been thinking of you a lot. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening today. Please subscribe to this podcast and share this episode to save lives of mothers, daughters, wives, sisters, and friends like Amanda. A special thanks to Emily Chason for joining us today. Make sure to follow Ovarian Cancer Canada on Instagram and check out their website.
1: Take care.